So I have quite a few notes for my talk tonight. So perhaps we can think about our meditation and um, our cushions as a place where we gather strength for this journey of connecting with life as it is. I came across this word in a book uh, a while ago, a word in Spanish. It's not a word in common usage, um, and you'll understand why in a moment. certainly wasn't a word I knew in common usage myself. The word is querencia. And according to the book, it's this place in a bull ring where the bull feels safe and where he gathers his full strength and becomes powerful and for the bullfighter becomes dangerous. So he founds, I, I think of it like he finds his power spot. When I was younger, I read all of Carlos Castaneda's books, and people my age will know what I'm talking about. You younger people might not, but um, it was uh, books written by um, a man who, who it, there's some question of whether he did actually study with a shaman in um, Mexico. And I remember this story um, where Don Juan, the shaman, tells him to find his power spot. And um, it's on a porch, so he says, you have to find your power spot on this porch. And Carlos Castaneda spends hours like trying out this spot, trying out that spot, trying to find his power spot. Finally, like after hours and hours of this, it's the middle of the night, he falls asleep. And the next morning, Don Juan comes out and says, oh, you found it. And I always loved that story. Um, it seems somehow related to meditation, right? <laughs> like we try and we try and we try and we try, and there's something about kind of letting go um, that we actually find our power spot. And then I started thinking about... Um, well, actually, Dama Ruin got me thinking a little bit about when I was a child. And um, when I was quite young, maybe six, seven, eight years old, that's when I started remembering it anyway, I used to go out in the yard and uh, crawl in this um, pine tree. Not up in it, but in it. Like, the, like I could get through the branches, and I could, there was this little cave-like place I had inside, and I could sit in there, and I liked to go and just sit. And in the winter, um, I would sit in, I, I grew up in Minnesota, it's kind of cold there. In the winter, I would sit in the um, attics, in the eaves of the house where the attics were, like um, it was an old house. I was, I was kind of an introvert, and I was also a, a somewhat anxious uh, child and young adult, and I felt like I was just trying to find perhaps some quiet. I um, had seven brothers and sisters, and... Uh, Quiet was not something that was, there was a lot of. Um, but I was looking for some sense of some quiet and stillness. And as I grew, I kept doing this. As I, as I got older, I kept finding what I, I think of them as power spots. Um, I remember our family would go camping, and I would find this. I had this spot I went back to over and over again in this meadow where I would sit and... I knew I was looking for something. This was when I was a teenager now. I knew I was looking for something. I knew that thinking wasn't going to get me there. 
I had some sense that I was trying to learn how to be present or embodied or still and that that would provide some answers for me or would satisfy this kind of longing that was there. And then we moved when I was 16 and we moved to a small town and the first thing I did almost was go out in the marsh and find a spot, a power spot. And when I was 18, I I worked in Yellowstone National Park in a gift shop in the canyon area. And right away, I found my power spot out on the canyon wall, way out. And you could see the falls in the distance. And I would go there, and I would just sit. And this was before I knew about meditation. I would sit and, and try to figure out how one would be present. Because also, if you try to figure it out, then you're also in trouble, right? So I kind of figured that out, that if I tried to figure out how to be present, I wasn't present. I was lost in my thoughts and concepts and speculations. So I would sit and watch. I think of this whole place as a power spot. It's a powerful area. Um, first, we have this, this vantage, uh, this vista to the west, right? And so it's kind of a little bit high. And then before it was this, or is this Buddhist center, it was a Christian monastery. So it has this history of uh, spirituality here. Or maybe we can think of our cushions, our, our walking spots as power spots. And eventually we have a transportable power spot within, which is, is that we take the power with us. We take our power with us wherever we go, no matter what is happening. That's an advanced power spot when we can carry it with us. So when I talk about power, I'm talking about power, you could say, in, in the, the most beautiful sense of the word. A lot of practice is strengthening these um, mind states that give us a sense of power or perhaps self-respect is a word that may be more relatable or um, confidence or trust, trust in ourselves, trust in our practice. And it's a sense of power or strength or trust that allows us to relax and see life as it is. So we strengthen wholesome states of mind like generosity and ethical conduct and metta and concentration and determination and perseverance and patience. You're doing all of that. Sometimes we kind of narrow our practice down, right? We judge our practice. You know, we have the the midway grade evaluation So uh, halfway done, these new people show up and we're like, hmm, did I get it? How am I doing? Am I failing? Am am I passing? Um, And the new folks come in, it's like, can I do this? Am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be able to, to make progress in my practice? So all of this evaluation, right? But maybe that's then what we do is we like look at how many breaths we can follow and we, do, and we evaluate our practice by that or whether we got sleepy in a sitting. We have such a narrow 
focus sometimes. Perhaps we can, if we want to uh, look at our practice, maybe we can look at it as the development of these qualities, these paramis, these um, perfections of a Buddha. And that you're actually, you're, you're doing that. You're developing here patience. To sit through a 45-minute sitting takes a lot of patience. To keep going all day, wow, it takes so much perseverance. As I was driving up here on Tuesday, I'll confess, I had this thought. Wow, how do we ever get through a three-month course? Like, how do we, how do, we do that? You know, it's so... Um, it takes an enormous amount of strength, right? To have the, the willpower and the perseverance uh, to keep going. So I'm so impressed that like you're all still here or you all came and took, um, took, undertook this huge task, right? It's so beautiful. Um, and so don't worry too much like if you can't follow five breaths in a row. You know, you're here. But you're still here. Super impressive. I was thinking about people who have a lot of personal power and that they have these, they have these paramis developed, right? Or certain paramis are very strong. So I was thinking about An Sang Suki, the Nobel um, Peace Prize winner in Burma. And she has such a strong sense of integrity. I've read um, a biographer, biography of her recently and so much integrity ethics, very strong ethics. And then this generosity that expresses itself in love for her people. That's power. That's the kind of power that we're developing by being here. And then I think of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. read several things by him and that fierce love and that fierce determination. Great parmi, right? Lots of power. Or Gandhi. Gandhi had that, the, the renunciation, that power of renunciation. Another one of the parmis that uh, Annie talked about and, and the sense of integrity and so much persistence. So these are the things that we're learning here, among other things. We're, we're, we're developing those qualities because we need them. We need that strength for this um, noble task of connecting with life as it is. So we, so we come here and um, we set this intention to develop mindfulness, which is uh, somewhat the main part of my talk tonight. It's such a huge um, topic. Joseph just published a book, a big, fat book on, on you know, the titles of mindfulness. So um, we could uh, talk for a long time about this. We teachers have jokingly said that one year for the three-month course, for the first week, we're all going to give talks on mindfulness. It would be great. I hope we do it some year. And we could, you know. There's so much to say. So mindfulness has become a a, a word um, uh, uh, that's entered our our mainstream um, culture. And um, 
I think as it's entered our mainstream culture, the meaning, at least out in the in the big wide world out there, has uh, somewhat been somewhat narrowed. Um, so I'm going to plump it up a little bit here and um, how we mean it uh, in in our Buddhist practice out there. It's somewhat been equated with just paying attention. That's one component, obviously, of mindfulness, but it's much. Um, deeper than that. There's this, this kind of attention that we call mindfulness has much more depth to it and um, much more intelligence to it than just paying um, attention. Our cats can pay great attention at the screen door, the back screen door. You should see them sitting at this door. We call it kitty TV when we open the door. And um, they pay great attention, but as much as I love them, I don't think they're being mindful. I don't <laughs> think they have that much intelligence. So, so mindfulness isn't just paying attention. It's an intention. It's attention with intelligence. Pema Chodron says that the teachings of the Buddha are let go and open to your world. Let go and open to your world. So as we sit here, we're, we're opening wholeheartedly to our lives. You could say we're giving ourselves to life. We're opening to life as it manifests moment by moment. In some ways, we're daring to come out of the cocoon of our minds protected by thoughts and anxiety. Thoughts and anxiety protect us from connecting with life just as it is. We're daring to come out of these cocoons and and come into the body. We've been talking a lot about the body, connecting to life through this body and through the sense experiences of this body. I read somewhere recently that in our practice we're not waking up, we're waking down, coming into the body into embodiment, into taking our um, place in this world wholeheartedly. Mindfulness is um, attention that connects with experience and knows it. So through mindfulness we we connect with, um, basically with life, which is six senses. We connect with the feelings in the body. We connect with hearing. We connect with uh, seeing, smelling, tasting. Did I forget one? The sixth one in um, Buddhism is the mind. We connect with the mind, thoughts, emotions, consciousness. That's life. So when I use the word life, we could substitute all of that. That's what it is. And we're learning how to, how to receive. We're learning how to receive all of that. There's a great book I read recently called New World, New Self, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century. And one sentence said, To be present in the world means making room 
for the world to be present in you. To be present in the world means making room for the world to be present in you. So much openness. Suzuki Roshi described mindfulness as soft readiness. Soft readiness to meet the moment. Soft has that sense of openness and flexibility. Readiness has that sense of alertness without agenda. Soft readiness. There's this flexibility too, no? With that phrase, soft soft readiness, a certain flexibility that seems like it could perhaps move with life as life moves. It really sounds like it shouldn't be so hard to connect with our bodies sitting here with our senses. But what we discover is that life is kind of intense. If you haven't already noticed that, it's, it's, it's quite intense. It's intense because of the speed and the uncontrollability, the wild nature of life, right? You only have to come in for a sitting or two to see this. You only have to observe your mind for a short while. We as humans aren't so sure what we think about this situation that we've landed in, this universe that we've been born in. We, uh, because of our ambivalence about this wild world, we found ways to armor the heart and the mind, to buffer our contact with the world, to protect ourselves. And this soft readiness has the sense of allowing some of that armor to melt, to let ourselves be receptive to life. So these bodies... These bodies are our um, direct connection to the, to the present moment. And many of you have heard of the teachings of the Buddha of the four foundations of mindfulness, the uh, four places you could say that we investigate or place our attention or support our mindfulness. There's many ways we can look at that. Um, and the first one is the body. One time I looked at this sutra and I counted for each of the foundations, I counted how many pages there were for each one, and the body was the longest. So much emphasis. So there's a body, for those of you who don't know, there's the, the foundation, first foundation of mindfulness is the body. The second foundation is uh, feeling tone, which Joseph mentioned this morning, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The third foundation is the mind and um, the, the consciousness flavored by different mind states, and some people include thoughts there too. And then the fourth foundation, you could say, is all the ways that um, we can understand uh, 
you could say it's a wisdom part of mindfulness. It's all the ways that we can understand life in a way that leads to freedom. So the fourth foundation includes mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths and the um, hindrances and the uh, factors of enlightenment and the sense bases. And um, the whole idea with this fourth foundation is uh, helping us to know how to see and how to look in a way that will develop freedom which is the ultimate goal of mindfulness, is this learning, learning so that we <coughs> develop very experiential understanding of what leads to freedom. And it starts with the body, the first foundation, the body. And the Buddha has um, pages. There's, in the sutra, there's pages. Well, he didn't have pages. He gave discourses. <laughs> but in, in the um, written discourses, there's pages of of ways we can connect with the body, starting with the breath and connecting with um, the breath and then with our posture, sitting, standing, lying, walking. And then there's um, descriptions of, of paying attention to all of our activities during the day. We, We've talked about this as our continuity of practice. So there's reaching and eating and going to the bathroom. And it's a long list of like all the different ways that um, we can pay attention as we move through a day. And then there's meditations on, on the body, um, the elemental nature of the body. Earth, water, fire, air. Helps us to not um, appropriate the body so much as our own when we understand it that way that it's these elements that um, arise and pass away in various mixtures and combinations. And then there's um, a whole uh, section on um, corpses, on death, and meditation of, of the body as it decays um, day after day, finally ending with dust, bones, and dust. I think there might be one more section. I can't remember at the moment. Um, but that's pretty thorough. That's a pretty thorough investigation of what this body is and connecting to it, understanding it, developing wisdom from that connection. Wisdom about the nature of this universe. And so this practice that we're doing, starting with connecting with the body, is um, it's not an intellectual or conceptual exercise. I think we've mentioned that, but we can mention it over and over again because we love... We so wish that we could figure it out. We so wish that we could use our minds to understand um, and to find freedom. We, we, we so wish that we could, yeah, just think about it long enough and then that we would <laughs> uh, understand. We would know how to free the heart and mind. But it doesn't work that way. Yes, certainly, as Dhamma Ruin was saying last night, hearing the Dharma is a support, but then we have to practice. And practice means that we see um, all of this truth 
moment by moment in this experience that we call our life, or we could call life manifesting moment after moment in this organism. And so that understanding develops by that um, connection moment after moment with life and seeing what happens or feeling viscerally what happens. It's, it's more of a visceral knowing than a conceptual one. It's, it's a different kind of knowing. It might, after the visceral knowing, there may be a conceptual knowing that comes out of it that says, oh, wow, everything changes. <laughs> so there might, we might have words for it then afterwards, but the knowing seems to have to be deeper than that. It's kind of like if, if somebody tells you that a potato is hot, you might not drop it, you might not really believe them, but if, you, but if somebody puts a hot potato in your hand and you feel it, you'll know to drop it. That's a little bit what it's like. We need that visceral, that feeling to under, of seeing and directly experiencing change, directly experiencing dukkha. directly seeing for ourselves the spaciousness of anatta, not self. Mindfulness is sometimes called a present-time non-judgmental awareness. Non-judgmental, it almost made me laugh because we're so, we have such a deep um, tendency or um, Mm, conditioning to judge, right? To judge these moments of experience. Take them very personally and then judge them, whether we like them, don't like them, want them, don't want them, think they're good enough, think they should be different. With mindfulness, you could say we aim towards a present-time non-judgmental awareness. So again, it has a certain, that non-judgmental has a certain soft quality or um, I think of it as a, as a metta-like quality. Mindfulness arises with many um, beneficial mind states. I think this was mentioned a couple nights ago. It comes with man- many beneficial mind states. They arise together. And one of them is non-anger, which is one way that metta is described. So... True metta has some sense of friendliness there, or at least an absence of anger and, and uh, an absence of judgment. It doesn't have an absence of discernment. That's different. Discernment's very useful and comes with mindfulness. But judgment is, is the condemning or comparing or um, the slightly aggressive state of mind. I was uh, reading uh, not too long ago, I think this may have been in the same book, the New World, New Self book, but it was, there was a story about John Washington Carver, who was a botanist who was born into slavery in this country in 1864. And he became a, a very um, well-known botanist and inventor and was um, known to have a genius with healing knew how to heal with plants. And he said, all the flowers talk to me 
and so do hundreds of living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. That sentence caught my eye. He didn't just say, I learn what I know by watching everything. He added these words and loving everything. I think of this as mindfulness, watching and loving everything. There's something about the, the, the loving everything that um, allows us to relax enough to see clearly what is there, to integrate it, include it, moment by moment. I think that's what makes um, curiosity possible, too. That sense of non-judgment, or love, or metta, or acceptance, whatever words work for you. Um, We bring that quality of curiosity, which allows us to see things as they are, allows us to see things fresh. And again, this is harder than it seems because um, we, we so automatically bring um, so many ideas and expectations about how life is that, that to actually see what's really happening, it takes um, it takes a lot of courage, actually. The courage to... Um, Keep touching directly, directly, directly what's happening. So think about the difference between your concept of breath and your actual experience of breath. Notice what we miss about the breath as a lived experience if we live in our thoughts about the breath. The thoughts about the breath are so stale, they're old. The lived experience of the breath is fresh, new, changing. We miss a lot of the truth of life because we see life through our thoughts. A number of years ago, I learned this very clearly once a number of years ago. Um, I mentioned the first night that I worked in community mental health for many years, and mostly I, um, most of the people I was with were Puerto Rican because I speak Spanish, and so that was helpful. And one time I was sitting talking with one of um, my clients, and she, she had only been in the United States a few um, months, and she... Suddenly she goes, Rebecca, she said this in Spanish, but I'll say in English. She, she said, Rebecca, there's this beautiful bird out the window. She looked out the window, this beautiful bird, and I love birds. So I was like, oh, really? So I went over and I looked out the window and I said, oh, that's just a blue jay. They're very common. And it was really eye-opening for me because I thought about it afterwards. Like, who really saw that bird? I didn't see the bird. I saw my idea of the bird. She saw the bird. 
She saw it freshly because it was the first time she'd seen a blue, uh, a blue jay, right? But um, ever, you know, that, that's, that reminds me often to, to see with new, fresh eyes, with, um, to see a blue jay. Every time I see blue jays now, just about I remember that story. And it's like, oh, it's a beautiful bird. Can we see a breath like the first time she saw that blue jay? Check it out. So when I said earlier that mindfulness has intelligence as part of it, uh, what I mean is that the whole purpose of mindfulness is to learn. So to learn what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom. Joseph was saying the first morning that we can learn, or not the first morning, this morning, that we can learn so much by by. Uh, connecting with the different sensations in the body, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensations of the body, right? And then we are starting to connect with the second foundation of mindfulness, this feeling tone. The first visual, visceral um, impression of a sense contact, you could call that what feeling tone or Vedana is. And it's so important because so much flows out of that. If we don't pay attention, um, our automatic conditioning that flows out of that is one of suffering. If we're not paying attention, there's this automatic um, aversion to what's unpleasant or grasping what's pleasant or spacing out with what's neutral. So it's a really important place to pay attention because it's where... um, all the reactivity and the armoring and the separation and the alienation and the stress starts with this feeling tone. So this is why we sit with pain, not because we're masochistic, but because we want to learn. And so we, we sit directly with that experience of pain to see if we can um, learn through the direct experience of our conditioned reaction. It's often said um, that there are two kinds of suffering. There's a kind of suffering where we do the same thing over and over again, and then there's a kind of suffering that leads to freedom, and that's the suffering when we can stop and turn towards um, what's difficult. Thomas Merton said that when we're on retreat, we learn to suffer effectively. So that's what we're hoping for all of you here, is that you suffer effectively, which means that you'll learn something from it. So that's what we're trying to do with pain. So there's, um, perhaps there's a a pain in the knee. And uh, so we, we shift our attention or we can notice that we're drawn to that. And first of all, um, what's really happening? So we can drop from the level, we have level concept pain in the knee. 
what's really happening, we can get interested. Oh, what I call a pain in the knee is burning and um, jabbing, a little throbbing undertone, sense of stretching. And so then we, 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 we stick with that, and what happens? Well, we thought we had this kind of like solid pain in our knee, but we start to see that it's not so solid, that it shifts and moves and is vibrant and alive and changing, right? We start to see the truth of change right for ourselves, right there. Maybe it gets stronger, maybe it gets weaker, maybe it goes away, maybe it moves to another place, maybe it changes to another sensation. That's pretty intense. That's that wildlife that I was talking about. So, so, so then we also notice what is the relationship to that sensation. And if it's unpleasant, so we notice perhaps the mind goes, no, I don't want that. What is that like? What's it like to go, no, I don't want that, right? And then we can say, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe could I just connect with those sensations? Are there moments? So we may experience these moments where we, oh, it's just sensation. And then we notice, oh, there's not suffering here. Go away. Oh, that's stressful. So we get interested in all of this. This is what I mean by learning. And this is what I mean by moment by moment. We're with the process. And we start to see for ourselves that it's stressful to push away what's unpleasant. That it's dukkha or suffering to push away. And then the mind considers the possibility of opening to what's unpleasant. And we start to see that, oh, perhaps it's bearable or even more than bearable, it's okay. And then with pleasant, we also do uh, the same kind of investigation, right? So we have this tingling in the body, perhaps. And um, so we turn towards it. Usually there's a little more willingness to turn towards it. It's not as challenging, right? But there's a different kind of challenge um, with, with the pleasant sensation. So we turn towards them, feel the, the, the tingling. And then we notice some quiet voice in the mind saying, how can I keep this here? How can I make this stay? How can I make this next sitting be the same as this one? Right? Turn, we turn towards that. Oh, holding on. We notice there's stress there. There's dukkha, tension, that holding on. How can I make it stay? Right? So then we go back to the sensations perhaps and is it possible to fully experience them and know that they will change without the grasping? We get curious. Of course, often with pleasant sensations, we'd rather not be mindful. We'd rather space out. Um, So that's the challenge with the pleasant ones is to actually bring mindfulness and to notice if there's grasping. 
we'd rather sometimes be a little entranced by the pleasantness. And um, so that's advanced practice there is to, to be willing to, to notice if there's um, grasping towards that pleasantness. Wow, so much to learn from sensations in the body, from pain, from pleasant exp- uh, sensations in the body. And then with, with pain, it's just important that, um, I think as I was saying yesterday morning, that, that uh, we don't have to stay with it for hours and hours. Um, we, we try to do it in a way that protects our enthusiasm or that doesn't wither the mind. And so if, um, you know, we might be with pain for a while and then we might move away to something neutral or even something slightly pleasant to refresh the mind. And especially with chronic pain, this is really important. We have to know how to move out of it, in and out, in and out, so that we, um, I think of it as we protect our enthusiasm for practice. We don't uh, wither, (laughs) wither from too much pain. And then sometimes what helps us with this protecting our enthusiasm is to um, as I mentioned the other day, to take in some of the pleasant sensations, balance or soothe the nervous system with the, uh, taking in the um, sound of the wind in the pines or the smell of the leaves. There's a lot of joy that um, we can experience through this receptivity and openness to the senses. And we'll notice this on retreat sometimes that, that there's a vibrancy and the, the pleasant sensations that we can experience too out in the world. Uh, the colors of the leaves, they're, they're brighter and um, more vibrant because we're present actually. Notice subtler things. When I walk in the, I love to walk in the woods a lot, and um, it's interesting. Sometimes I'm more present, sometimes less present. But what I notice often when I come back from a period of being lost in thought, that the first thing I will notice is smelling, and that's like almost how I know that I'm present because I'll, I'll smell the woods. That's the sense that uh, becomes predominant. So in all of this, we've moved on to the third foundation of mindfulness, the looking at the mind and the, and the um, mind states that are um, flavoring the, the consciousness, uh, the, whether they're the unwholesome mind states, grasping aversion, or um, more wholesome mind states, calm, equanimity, acceptance. So as I said, the deepest purpose of mindfulness is to learn. To learn what causes suffering and what leads to freedom. 
especially to learn and to see directly for ourselves the three characteristics of reality that many of you also know about, and which I was mentioning earlier, the truth of change, the truth of stress or dukkha, and the truth of not-self. seeing for ourselves directly in our own practice how um, that these truths and how uh, understanding them deeply and viscerally lets, leads us to letting go. The freedom of letting go. last thing I want to talk about a little bit is um, this sense that we often come to meditation with this um, hope of getting it perfect. We have this fear of failing, I think. So many of us, so deeply conditioned There's even a word for fear of failure that I saw recently. It's kakorafiophobia. So we're all (laughs) kakorafiophobic. It's kind of an interesting word. We all, like, we so want to get it right, no? Someone mentioned yesterday being a perfectionist. Um, in our practice and in general and I said well good luck because we live in such a you could say an imperfect world it's such a changing and wild world that um, it's pretty hard to peg it down to be perfect there's a story I think it's great not everybody does but there's a story of Pema Chodron. She tells about the first time that she met her teacher, um, Trungpa Rinpoche. And he told everybody present that if they'd come to get their act together, they should just forget it because they never would. <laughs> I just love that. It's so much, um, wow, so much freedom. <laughs> Norman Fisher says meditation practice is mostly the practice of failure. So maybe we can just learn to fail spectacularly. And, um, and it just gives us so much room to learn then. And so much room to be beginners. I was thinking about when a baby learns to walk. Um, they fail over and over again, Right? Somehow we don't look at that as bad. We think it's great. They're trying, they get up, they um, try again. Maybe we can learn in the same way. I found a lot of stories I wanted to read at the end of this talk. I'm going to read this one, I think. It's um, uh, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter novels, which were definitely not a failure, um, (laughs) quite um, successful. 
and this is a graduation speech she gave at Harvard University on the subject of failure. I think it fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven days after my graduate, no, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you what that failure is fun. That period of my life was a dark one, and I had no idea there was going to be what the press has since represented as a fairy tale resolution. I had no idea how far the tunnel extended. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure means a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that it was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that really mattered to me. I'm going to read that one again because I like it. Simply, simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential, I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only thing, work that mattered to me. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive. Failure gave me an inner security that I had never attained by passing examinations. Such knowledge is a true gift for all that it is painfully won and it has been worth more than any qualification I ever earned. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered. Perhaps that's um, what we can do with meditation is, um, is exactly that, is the, is that, um, you know, the, 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 the wanting to be perfect or the fear of failure is a, is a somewhat a wish to pretend to ourselves that we're something other than what we are. So perhaps we can learn to rest into what we are, which means actually to rest into this life as it's manifesting moment by moment, which is putting energy into the work that matters, which is um, seeing things as they are and not with the overlay of what we think they should be or want them to be or shouldn't be. And even this wish to get it perfect itself can be a great teaching. It's really just old, deeply deeply ingrained conditioning. It's a story that we tell ourselves over and over again. Watch out for it. It's really um, important to, to catch all the permutations because it, um, it deflates us. It takes away that power that we talked about earlier. So there's all these permutations. This shouldn't be happening. Something better should be happening. I was lost in thought too long. I shouldn't be having this experience. What's happening isn't good enough. It doesn't measure up. I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. This shouldn't be happening. Something different should be happening. That's kind of the, the, the bottom line, right? This subtle dissatisfaction. Watch out for it. Name it when you see it and question it. 
What if it's not true? Mindfulness isn't all that picky about what's happening. Mindfulness is fine with meeting joy or sorrow, pleasure or pain, sleepiness, alertness. So when those kinds of self-judgment thoughts or the judging our practice thoughts or the self-doubting thoughts or we might all have different ways of experiencing it, maybe not everybody here obviously has that conditioning, though I know a lot of us do. Notice that it's just a story. And then notice the stickiness of those thoughts. That they have like they're like glue, right? It's like the the the, the they're like suction. They pull you right into like believing them, right? Not watch how that happens, right? So these kinds of thoughts come up and then oh you're like in that story and you're believing it. That's called identification. We were talking about thoughts a little bit this morning. That's so. What if? Um, so what's it like if if we we notice it's a story? Question it. This is bringing mindfulness to thoughts, the the sticky ones. And and again, this isn't so much a a, 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 a um, it's not so much with words. It's with this feeling it, the the stickiness, and then, oh, maybe there's some moments of non-identification where it's like, oh, there's that story I tell myself. This is how we learn not to be bothered by our thoughts. We might still have the same thoughts, but there's not this identification with them which makes us take them seriously take them personally, believe them, and get lost in them. It's a story that comes up. Wow. It's how we learn not to be bothered by our thoughts. We can still have the same thoughts, but they lose their power over us. So we can get really interested in this chain of thinking. Here's another story of failure. This is from a book called Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path, which is a really great book um, by Mariana Copeland. She said, I have a friend I used to live with in South Africa who at 75, and after more than 40 years of spiritual practice, uh, still actively explores some principle in the above paragraph. Sometimes when I come home and ask her how her day had been, she would say, oh, it was a good day. I had some strong reactions to people, and that was the divine's way of saying to me, Gillian, you still have more work to do. I love that. There's so much lightness around it, right? So in your practice, when some reactivity comes up, you can say to yourself, oh, it's been a good day. But maybe I still have some more work to do. Time on this journey is not of um, too much importance. 
basically we just keep going. At some point there's nothing else that seems possible or feasible. Just this um, willingness to meet life, to connect with it, to learn from it, to let it teach us. We let our lives teach us. In some ways you can feel the the relaxing into from that. Rather than going out after the truth, we let life teach us. And it and it does. It shows up right. There's moment after moment of life. We let us teach it teach us about sorrow. We let it teach us about dukkha. We let it teach us about happiness. We let it teach us about freedom. So I wish for you the courage to let life be your teacher, your life in all of its changing manifestations, every one of them. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.